Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started with this episode, we wanted to let you know that there is still time to register for the Ag Emerge Summer Summit. You're invited to join us August 4th and 5th for a two-day field event where you'll experience soil health and regenerative agriculture in action on the Bottens Family Farm in Cambridge, Illinois. In addition to learning from Monty, you'll hear from experts in their field, including Dr. Joel Groover and Megan Filbert, along with some thought-provoking and motivational stories shared by farmer and mentor Cameron Mills and retired mixed martial artist and UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich. We'll cover a lot of ground from the basics of cover cropping to the wild side of livestock integration. So come enjoy a chance to think outside the box and get your questions answered as we share years of experience in a full transparency farm tour. Oh, and we won't let you go hungry. All meals during the event are included with registration, and we'll also keep you entertained as you'll have a unique opportunity to spend a fun evening in the pasture with dinner and live music at the fourth annual Concert with the Cows. This is an event you won't want to miss. For more information and to get registered, head on over to our website at www.asn.farm. And now, on to our show. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Eric Jackson and Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. Eric currently serves as the board chair of the Bionutrient Association. And since we last spoke with Dr. Van Vliet, he has joined the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University. You'll want to check out the show notes for their full bios. Eric and Stefan talk with Monty about how they are working together to explore nutrient density and food production from the soil up. Eric stated it best when he said it became apparent to him that there is a path forward if we want to create a food system that gives an opportunity for growers to participate in the value that they create through their production practices around quality. And there's a lot packed into this conversation. So let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm I'm really blessed to be joined by two great individuals today. And uh, we'll see how this works with technology and everything. I'm pretty excited about it. First off, we got Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. Uh, Many of you know him from uh, previous uh, podcasts that we did on tying the whole soil health to human nutrition. It was uh, pretty popular. A lot of listens and people had a lot of questions about it. So we're happy to have him back. And today we're also joined with Eric Jackson. I'm pleased to have him here. He's got a wide, diverse background in, in food, nutrition. And I'm just going to give a little time for for each of you to kind of tell your background stories and and what brings you to this intersection of soil health and human nutrition. So Eric, if we could, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity here. Um, you know, my my entire career was spent building supply chains in agriculture. And, you know, I came up sort of through the classic channels of uh, more is better. And we really focused a lot on quantity, both at the crop production level, as well as in the processing and handling and shipping level. About 17 years ago, I don't know exactly, you know, what got into something I ate, um, but I decided that 
the probably the next path forward would have to be around the qualitative attributes of food, of food rather than just the quantitative attributes. You, you can't can't do you know either one exclusively. But I think uh, again, based on my experience, we really had not spent any time talking about quality other than the base, basic grain assays and you know protein, fat, and moisture and things like that. So it was, you know, fast forward until uh, 2019 when I met Dan Kittredge at Bionutrient Food Association, and we struck up a conversation. We actually did some work, uh, you know, testing the nutrient density of wheat and and oats uh, in 2020. But it became apparent to me that there is a there is a path forward if we want to create a food system that gives an opportunity for growers to participate in a value that they create through their production practices around quality, um, we can do some upfront work to sort of prove out the model. And then modeling, I, I believe, can take it forward. I mean, Stefan, you and I haven't talked about this too much, but clearly we're not going to eventually test every single cut of meat, for example. Um, but I think we're going to find out some truisms through this research that will allow us to create these models and give consumers an, an option, right? And once we can give, give consumers an option, we're pretty confident that the market will take it from there. So. Um, the Bionutrient Food Association has been doing work for about the last 10 years to determine, first and foremost, is the variability in the nutrient composition of food significant? Because if it's not terribly significant, then who cares, right? And we're, you know, what is significance? Well, we didn't know when we got started doing this work what, what you know, what exactly we were looking for. Uh, you know, in our wildest dreams, we thought maybe a 50% differential or something like that. And what we've come up with in our research over the last uh, several years across a wide variety of crops is we see orders of magnitude of difference in terms of nutrient content, 10, 20, 50, 100, to an extreme 200 times the level of certain nutrients in various crops. But if you look at them visibly, they, they look quite similar. And so armed with that information, we consider that to be non-controversial at this point. The variation, the variability exists. So now, obviously, the key question is why, right? And so we, that's, that's what we're working on going forward, and it's all with an eye towards being able to create a marketplace that values quality uh, you know, at the consumer level. So by the modeling aspect that you're looking at, Eric, um, you're saying that we've identified we got anywhere from 10x to 200x nutrient density difference, depending on what that component is. So now we're going to try and find out what is driving that. So by the model, are you hoping then that you can input uh, the various drivers, whether it's a production practice, a variety selection, a geographic location, you know, a soil test quantities that then you can essentially predict that this is going to have, you know, a 5X outcome or, or this set of conditions will have a 200X outcome? Is, is that what you're, you're hoping to, to do with that? Yeah, I mean, I'll let Stefan obviously talk about the scientific process, mm -hmm. but I think in in general you're you're spot on. In general, when once we understand what set of conditions creates what set of outcomes, and we can do that reliably and repeatedly, repeatedly, then we can start to use a model to demonstrate that. Obviously, you'll be doing ground truthing, you know, on occasion to make sure your model's working. Mm -hmm. But the point is really not to get down to the nth degree, the point is to create a green, yellow, red type scheme that's easy for consumers to understand, right? And that you have confidence in, in the presentation because we've done the research up front that, that we're embarking on 
with Stefan in the case of beef and with other parties in, in other, in other crops. Right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with chemistry or you're dealing with mechanics, you know, input A equals output B many times that that's, that's really easy. So now Dr. Van Vliet, we're in the biology world here. So there's a lot of un, unknowns and how all these interactions happening. Um, Eric, describes it very succinctly very well what do we want to accomplish but i noticed he threw that back onto you there real quick that that you're the guy that has to figure this out so we're both sitting here waiting tell us exactly how how daunting of a process is this and 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 how how do you is there hope to be able to accomplish these things yeah no well i'm happy to figure it out and it's uh, of course very very interesting and important to work uh yes eric described what we hope to see is that if we profile, let's say we profile 300 beef farms or 300 ranches ranging anywhere from uh, uh, feedlot finish to, to grass fed, but in grass fed, there's obviously differences between rotational grazing, continuous grazing, diverse pastures, monoculture pastures and things like that. But it's really a spectrum that we see this on. But what we uh, hope to find or what our hypothesis is and what our initial pilot data would suggest is that Farmers that have certain practices in common, uh, such as uh, rotational grazing, leaving plenty of uh, uh, forage on the, on the pastures, uh, having ground cover on there. Those are some of the patterns that then we see emerging as, okay, these certain principles or these practices result in a phytochemically rich piece of meat or another uh, uh, crop or, or another type of, you know, eggs or milk. So whether this be in North Dakota or Florida or, or Mexico, right, there are certain principles that farmers seem to adhere to that results in, in, in the most nutrient-dense uh, type of foods. And how that exactly looks depends on the farmer, depends on the ecoregion, what the farmer can accomplish, right? Because there's, there's many things that uh, uh, come involved with that and you cannot always be perfect, but that is kind of what we hope to find, these certain patterns and that we can reasonably say, because also we do human nutrition work and we're not gonna feed uh, 300 types of uh, beef to uh, someone, uh, that will be a, a very long trial. But if we can say, okay, yeah, it'll be every day, that's right. Uh, I'll help, if, no problem. <laughs> But if we say, okay, this piece of beef that was grown in this way falls in this percentile of nutrient density, so and we see these health outcomes in people, then it's safe to say that other pieces of beef that fall roughly on the same sliding scale of nutrient density would be expected to have similar outcomes. So that is a way of, uh, of we try to uh, figure out the importance of, uh, of nutrient density, because as, as Eric described, we see these uh, tenfold, hundredfold differences in certain nutrients. Now I must say it's not as dramatic in beef, but we still see uh, substantial differences. Um, the next question is, is then, does this have an appreciable health effect? Something can look healthier on paper, but is the actual effect something we can pick up in human health? Can we make a difference for the health of the population? So I think you, um, since the last time we discussed, you were doing some um, research in regards to tracking the, the soil, the animal, and all the secondary metabolites, and then in looking at blood samples and such with, with humans. 
Uh, I know that was one of the things you were doing, but you've also done some recent research that just was released. Uh, you want to update us a little bit on, on uh, what that was and what, what, how that leads into this uh, soil to human connection. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've done uh, additional profiling of, uh, we started really at the soil and one interesting that we noticed is we uh, went to various grass fed beef farms. We took soil there. We took forage samples from there. And then we found the nearest monoculture cornfield and we took soil samples from there too. So in the same ecoregion, oftentimes these were just a, a mile apart. And uh, those would actually serve as sort of the, you know, the monoculture corn, a lot of it would go into the commodity market, might end up in, in feedlots. So that's the model, sort of the conventional feedlot finished model, right? So we took those corn samples, we took those pasture samples. And it was kind of interesting because some of the research team that was there already said, well, Stefan, we could just look at these samples and we see there's a difference. But we also tested them. And indeed, there was a, uh, obviously a difference. We, we found uh, 2 to 3% higher soil organic matter in the, uh, in the pastures compared to the, the, the corn, uh, the monoculture corn fields. We also found more minerals, uh, higher total exchange capacity, so the ability of the plants to, uh, to, to soak up nutrients. Um, and it really gets after the question is, is that, okay, if we use these for well-managed animals, for well-managed uh, grazing, um, does this have an impact on, on soil health? Well, we found that uh, typically uh, the soil is healthier if we uh, have actual animals graze it rather than, you know, growing uh, uh, commodity crops that maybe then go into uh, uh, animal agriculture later. Then this relationship we also see translating through is where, okay, this improved soil health results in more phytochemicals in the plants, right? Because the plant has to get its nutrients from somewhere and it's maybe an oversimplification because there's a symbiotic relationship between the plants and the soil, but okay, more nutrient-rich soils equals more phytochemically rich plants. And then we see this, this translation or this carryover towards the meat where the animal, if they're grazing more phytochemically rich plants, then we see the secondary metabolites appear in animal source foods. And these, depending on some individual compounds, they may be 10 or 20 fold higher, but on average, they're about three fold higher, these, these phytochemicals. So these are antioxidants, uh, polyphenols, terpenes and other compounds that have potentially anti-inflammatory effects, at least in uh, cell models or in vitro models or animal models, as I'm talking here about lab rats, they may have certain anti-diabetic or anti-cancer effects. Now we don't know, I'm not saying that grass-fed beef uh, lowers your risk of cancer, but okay, on paper, there are compounds in that that could potentially have these health effects. And that's the next thing we're trying to find out. That's fascinating. And one of the things you said early on, Eric, was about 17 years ago. I'm, and that very much ahead of trend, you know, being in the commodity business, like you said, it's all about, you know, pounds, tons, bushels, you know, consistency, 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 but seeing that 17 years ago, we really need to have this focus on quality. How does that supply chain change? You know, how, how do we make that happen? And you also mentioned uh, Kittredge too. And he has a real emphasis on local. Okay. And I think what the, you're right. talking about, uh, Stefan, there on, you know, across the road pasture versus the commodity grain field, you know, that's key. But I think there's some emerging research on epigenetics. If you eat, you know, food that's that your body's adapted to, the region that you live in and the food that grows there, 
how do we take this amazing system? Well, we thought it was amazing, I guess, <laughs> of commodities that you just can handle billions of tons of product efficiently and just reverse engineer it back to 100, 150 years ago. How, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in what I use. The phrase I use is crawl, walk, run. You know, this isn't about a sudden replacement of anything that currently exists. This is first and foremost about understanding what the possibilities are. You know, the other component about local and regional food systems that's also true is in and of itself that leads to healthier foods simply because of the of the distance between production and consumption, right? Now, yeah. bananas, we're not going to grow in the Midwest, but a lot of things that are grown in California, for example, can be easily grown in the Midwest on a seasonal, on a seasonal basis. And you might add 10 days of shelf life to that product simply by having it grown more locally. I think there's a there seems to be a significant push. You know, the timing seems right right currently. There seems to be a significant push to re-examine all aspects of the food supply chain. Uh, I think COVID, you know, broke a few things that we didn't think would ever break. Uh, the USDA certainly came out again last week in force and announced a whole bunch of programs that have, um, you know, relationships to regional and local production systems. So I, I can imagine a, a dual system. One is focused on food. One is focused on industrial ingredients, right? And the industrial ingredients could include food and, and might very well include food, but the food system itself, which is not what the predominance of acres goes towards right now in the U.S., right? Most of it's industrial ingredients for other processes. Mm -hmm. So if the food system is qualitative and the industrial system is quantitative, I think that's okay, right? I'm not suggesting that we're gonna that we're gonna ship you know unit trains of of beef from one place to another, um, you know, in in pursuit of this uh, better food system. But I do I do think that there is room for both, and I do think that there is a mentality right now in agriculture, and particularly in 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 the youth in agriculture, to try to reexamine some of the things that maybe we have forgotten, maybe we have, you know, given up in terms of uh, our pursuit of of you know high high quantities of stuff. So. But you need, you know, you can be, you can be very, you know, sort of blue sky about this on the one hand. On the other hand, scientific backing becomes very important because once you've, once you've proven something or once you've indicated something over and over and over again, you can hang a lot of things around that from a supply chain standpoint. And I've never met a farmer, and I know thousands of them, literally. I've never met a farmer that given the opportunity to participate in creating value on a consistent basis, won't won't put up their hand and say, I'm I'm really curious about that. At the very least, I'd like to understand it, right? But we need to be able to create that system, create that value proposition, and show that that is indeed available to them to participate in. And I think we'll we will get we will get participants at the production level. We will a lot of it will be more regional and more local. Uh, but I don't think it's an either or proposition. I think we we will continue to run an industrial sector as well. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. 
be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. And I, I think that's really interesting, you know, just looking at separating those out a little bit. I, and I think a great example of that and the value added that farmers chased after is the almond. And the Almond Board of California has done a, an amazing job of doing the research, right, over and over and over again of how healthy an almond is, right? They did that early right. on. And then they've, they've kind of scaled back on their research a little bit. They've kind of gone into research on the, you know, defending mode as far as pollinators and water consumption and, and those kind of things. But that core right. nutrition information, they have leveraged that and created, you know, 30 years ago, almonds were a nobody really want them. They're not that great of a crop. Now it's one of the leading crops in California. And, and I think, right. like you said too, those crops that are being grown like almonds, you're not going to grow in Iowa, but uh, in, tomatoes are used to be tomato processing plants here, produce, all those things could migrate and they will because of the water situation there. Um, there's just, there's water exactly. grow half as much as what we have period. And, um, and all of the West, really, we were talking ahead of the show about, you know, the great salt Lake and it's draining and those kind of things. So, there's some serious, serious things we got to happen, but there's hope because some of those industrial things that you're talking about, you know, I was a partner, my dad was a partner in an ethanol plant and, you know, that was all the rage. And all of a sudden when electric cars come on the scene, a little less need for ethanol, right? So that's one of those ingredients that's going to free up space for maybe some of those grass-fed cattle uh, and uh, soil improvement. So it's... I mean, uh, you can imagine... If I might interject, you can imagine a, a scenario in the not too distant future. Um, in agriculture, you know, it's only one swing a, a year. So, you know, we're only talking 10 or 15 innings here of, of time. You can imagine a situation where those 40 million acres that today are dedicated to grow corn for ethanol, right? Some of those aren't needed anymore. I'm not suggesting the entire ethanol industry goes away either, right? There's a whole bioplastics opportunity, you know, around that and conversion to other other materials but if those first acres that come out of corn production for ethanol are situated in, in what i call first ring zones around metropolitan areas right those should be food sheds those areas should be food sheds and should include animal production right now you're not going to want the animals in the cities right but 50 miles outside of the cities on acres working on soil regeneration as well as producing high quality food even for a local market, right? Which so your 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 time from harvest to consumption is really really short, which also increases the nutrient opportunity for the crop. I mean, all of that is it's it it would have sounded phantasmagorical ten years ago. I believe that that's actually where we are heading, and I think we if we are planful about it and it's backed up by the type of science that we're doing here. If we're planful about it, we can do it in an organized fashion, and absolutely everybody enjoys the abundance from that. The growers, the, the, particularly the growers, I think will participate in the value chain at a much higher level than they do today in the industrial value chain, where they are the, they get the last piece at, you know, at, in, in this world, they get the last piece of it. The only way they can participate in ethanol is by being an owner in an ethanol plant, right? Otherwise they get the last piece. Here they are sitting next to the consumer in some respects. And it becomes, it's not a CSA type program. There's still industrial aspects to the supply chain, but we've done our homework. And, and almonds actually is a great example. That's a, that's a, that's a phenomenal example of, of how things can move from, uh, you know, a, a not a well-appreciated well crop, let's say. And beef certainly has its challenges, right? 
-hmm. beef has its challenges in terms of the appreciation of, of what it can do for human health, much less for soil health. So I think beef is important because it's, it's the highest monetary category in agriculture. Yeah, and, and to add to that, and I agree, Eric, and uh, I think we'll probably land somewhere in the middle between local and industrial, and there's a, a room for both, right? After, during the Green Revolution, we went, uh, like it's heavily industrial model, sort of the idea was get big or get out, right? And, and really squeeze uh, the local food supply. And uh, I feel like now we're kind of getting back to also the, the local part we probably land somewhere in the middle, whereas maybe before we were all local and regional, then we went completely industrial, and we kind of want to land in the, in the middle on a combination of, of the two. And, and, and to that point, too, I oftentimes, you know, and I'm sure consumers can relate to this, when you try a uh, carrot or a strawberry from, from California, right, that was picked prior to peak ripeness, it, it kind of tastes lottery with a hint of carrot flavor or hint of of, of strawberry flavor, but now here the, the strawberries are back in season. And if they are picked the day before and then you get them, yeah, then you have that big flavor, right? And uh, also that results in the most phytochemically rich and antioxidant rich uh, strawberry. So also the nutrient density is higher because you a peak, uh, you harvest it before peak ripeness. So it doesn't have to, the, the peak phytochemical richness. And B, you also start losing that in supply chain. So it's uh, it can have both sort of benefits of connecting with local food supplies again, but also getting just you know a little bit more nutrient uh, foods on on the table of, of people. And and doing that indeed close to an, uh, an urban environment, I think, is great also for the farmers to have uh, yeah a big market uh, on farmers markets where uh, they can sell some of their products directly. Or even like Eric was referring to, you could have uh, cities where they're, uh, you know, the local distributor where farmers can feed into kind of a hybrid model. So instead of having a vertically integrated shipper uh, like Taylor Farms in, in California that's doing everything from planting it to packing it to distributing it, you'd have maybe the farmers participating in a cooperative or a, a independent distributor. Um, and that, that's interesting, those food ring idea that makes makes a lot of sense. And and again, it, it goes back to kind of reflecting the way things really were 100 years ago. You know, in my area, we're a long ways where I farm from a, a large population. So we grew a lot of grains here because that was easy to ship. But, you know, if you look at in the late 1800s, the number of dairies that surrounded Chicago, you know, was ridiculous. Illinois was a huge dairy state at that time because they right, had all these right. little dairies surrounding Chicago to feed Chicago. So uh, that, that's very interesting. The other thing I'm hopeful for is I remember when I first started farming, it was consistently about 72 million acres of corn and soybeans. And all of a sudden, you know, today it's hovering around the 90 million acres of each, right? So we, we brought 36 million acres into those crops. Now, yes, some came from cotton, some came from wheat, but a lot of it came from marginal areas on, I would call it the outer ring of the corn belt. And I think those are areas where they were struggling to be profitable in the beef cattle business. Uh, this was an opportunity with government guarantees and, and those kind of things, prevent plant, blah, 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 to, to make money. But I see as maybe that industrial need in, in ethanol decreases and your research with uh, grass-fed beef increases. Now there's an opportunity for the, the, the non-local, but the kind of the in-between grass-fed national brand to exist. Do you agree with that kind of a tier? You got the ring, you've got this 
kind of national brand healthier choice and then the conventional. Is, is that how you see it kind of sorting out, Eric? Well, I think I think one of the reasons that the beef industry has moved out of the Midwest, for example, primarily into you know into the Southwest and other areas, a there's land cost, b there's population, there's obviously state by state regulations with regards to capos and and everything about the production system, but there was also a centralization of the packing houses, right? And they, as you know, drove where you're going to raise the animals, so. It was it was determined by the economists, right, that that this new system was going to be more efficient than the old system, and it did not take into account that these marginal acres that you talk about are only marginal for corn and soy. <laughs> They're not necessarily marginal acres, right? And if taken care of, and and you know we're talking about not intensively grazing, but if taken care of on a managed basis, some of these marginal croplands can very easily be put to use in the production of, of ruminants products, right? The, the products that we get out of the ruminant system. So it's a, I think we'll be farm, I think we'll be grazing areas that we didn't think we were gonna graze again because it makes sense economically and because it makes sense from a nutritional standpoint. And I, I think that, again, you know, if you, if you listen to the USDA's announcements over the last several months, talking about specifically about the packing industry, and talking specifically about the need to reintegrate the local the local meat systems, right? That's the perfect opportunity to be launching this kind of research. This is the first body of research I'm aware of, Stefan, where we've taken you in the medical community and us in the agricultural community and intentionally put those together to create understanding, right? And you know, the supply chain piece is going to be, I think, will be worked out around the value proposition that if our research to your point, our thesis, if your research supports our thesis, then the I think that the market will figure this out pretty quickly. Yeah, and it's also a growing market, right? The, the grass-fed beef market's been growing uh, year after year. Local local food systems are growing. And to your point also about the, the marginal lands, we, we have been converting uh, marginal lands, grasslands, at about a million acres per year in the U.S. over the last 15 years. And oftentimes you go into less productive lands. So the yield of corn and soybeans on those new lands are not even as productive. They reach like 70, 80% level of of productivity because these lands are not as suitable for for growing these crops. And it comes at a a high cost of of wildlife, of uh, of bird populations, especially. And uh, yeah, if you could have a well integration of of, of animals there, I think that's uh, that's certainly a good point. And also um, the reintegration of those. And I was driving through Nebraska last year, and it was actually great to see how many cattle were grazing crop residue and and obviously putting nutrients back in and improving nutrient cycling and obviously giving them feed over the winter period, right? So I, I... Maybe it's just because I'm paying more attention to it, but it's also the literature would suggest that, you know, people are thinking more about that. And then even IPCC, the, in the latest report, the uh, agroecological approaches integrating crops, trees and livestock is being uh, hauled as, as one of the, the most important strategies and the strategy we have the most research for to improve the sustainability. And uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've separated those completely, right? 
crop agriculture, animal agriculture, and even nature, you know, because we, we think that agriculture and nature are somehow uh, completely different entities, which uh, it doesn't, doesn't make much sense and probably is part of the reason why we're in this mess. But those reassembling those linkages is going to be so important. And uh, I think there, oftentimes with, with local farmers and local food systems, it kind of naturally happens, that reintegration. And I, I think it's interesting, your observation of those cattle out in Nebraska. And, and, you know, the reason is, is many of them have, have cow-calf operations and they have some rangeland that they can't farm. So they're there and then they recycle those residues. But the funny part is, is that happened all the time. I remember when I was a, a kid, uh, real small kindergarten or something, someone said, oh, those are stock cows. And I heard it as stalk cows s-t-a-l-k because i thought that's what they were <laughs> stock cows they're out on corn stalks right so uh, you know and that was a common sight we saw it all the time you know yeah. but in our effort to be get big or go home um we've taken out every fence we have right so that's not even an option at this moment so uh yeah it, a lot of things have changed so let's say that the the, the thesis is proven correct and everything looks very promising now what can farmers be doing today to be prepared for this, this change to, to take advantage of this value add and, and those kind of things? What, I mean, what kind of feedback have you got Stefan from, from people, other farmers that you've talked to and all the sampling that you're doing, what, what kind of aha moments do the farmers themselves have of what they need to do differently as a result of the work you've done? Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's, it's usually uh, one of the things that uh, the farmers often uh, notice is, uh, well, what we notice in our work is the importance of plant diversity. If you're able to increase the biodiversity on your pasture, you typically accumulate uh, more nutrient-dense uh, meat. So that's, uh, that's higher amounts and a wider variety of these phytochemicals. Mm -hmm. And those also have sort of offshoot targets where that is it's better for the soil, right? The animal health is improved. So I think that's often an, uh, an aha moment uh, uh, for the farmers. They see a whole multitude of things improving. But I must also admit is that I'm often learning from the farmers in, in this work because the farmers see things, you know, empirically or they, they notice these things on the field. And then we take this into the lab and say like, okay, let's verify that. Let's see if that's the case. And let's see if we can find these patterns. And those are the initial, the, the, the patterns that we find is that especially the biodiversity piece seems to be uh, uh, particularly important. And yeah, I do understand it's, it's for farmers and oftentimes what, what we see at the struggle is, is that moving over, shifting gears, right? And, and usually it's a younger generation that then makes the transition and starts you know, doing this more in a regenerative way or maybe all the farmers that have uh, hit rock bottom, right? And, and are really feeling uh, yeah, hard to make a living that are making some of these changes and in an, in an attempt to uh, especially cut costs on the input side. And I think that's also what the, sort of the aha moment is with the farmers is that, uh, okay, requiring less fertilizer, requiring much less pesticides and herbicides. It's not so much that they uh, improve their, their uh, like, well, they make profit by cutting things on the, on, the, on the cost side of things rather than, you know, selling something for a much, much higher price. And I think that's really a aha moment is that, and even sometimes they get smaller, but they are able to uh, make more money. So I think that's so important. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, but it's usually something needs to happen for people to change or there's a turnover in generation, I think. 
What do you think, Eric? How do how do farmers be ready for uh, or, or to respond to this emerging uh, discoveries that we're having? Well, I kind of think about the nutrition discussion as being the next step beyond the environmental discussion. So there's a lot of focus today, as you know, on getting money back to production agriculture in the form of carbon credits or water credits or biodiversity credits. Ecosystem services is broadly what we call that category of monetization, right, of, of benefits. And I think that it, what, it, again, in my dreamland, the farmers will not only benefit from that, which has become more visible. And I got to tell you, I participated 17 years ago in the Chicago Climate Exchange, and that was all la-la back then, right? Nobody knew what the heck we were talking about. But that's front and center today. The problem is, is I don't think the consumer is going to buy that proposition. I don't think the consumer is going to spend any more money or pay that much attention, quite frankly, strictly to the environmental proposition. So if the farmer can reap the benefit and many, many growers, we all know them, are looking at this seriously. How do I participate in this ecosystem services market? And I can create a better product. That's a real winner. So I don't know that today, because we don't have all this research ready yet, I don't know that today the proposition around nutrition is the driving force. I think it's the proposition around environmental outcomes, which we believe, and again, through, through the pilot research that's been done by both BFA and Stefan, we believe that those outcomes are consistent with higher quality food. Yeah. Right. So, so let, let, let the environmental economic proposition carry through this transition period. And then, then once we have the research completed, then that proposition can come up alongside the environmental proposition and add yet one more layer of value to the, to the, to the uh, producer. So you're really looking at this, this qualitative focus, uh, you know, the quantity or excuse me, the quality based food, is not only going to provide the nutrient to the end consumer, but uh, there's that ecosystem services aspect to it that is going to help offset the quantity-based agriculture at the same time. So, and like you said, that is much more mature. It's it. There's some things in place now. Yeah. It's still a little bit of the wild west. Am I getting ten dollars? Am I getting a hundred? I'm on a steering committee right right now. We're discussing a hundred dollar per acre premium for for doing uh, these kind of things, and and the money is out there and. Uh, people, people want to uh, pay their indulgences for their, for their wrongs. Right. So, yeah. but I, it's I around think... soil, right? The, the, the yeah. discussions around soil. Correct. Right. And so we're tying together the soil outcomes with the food outcomes. So it's just, just think about it as a continuum. It's the next, it's the next level of value that's created by doing the same things you're doing right now to capture the ecosystem service. Yeah. Value. And, and it cannot be too surprising that if we improve soil health, we improve plant health that it has a trickle down effect, right? Like uh, uh, sometimes we're kind of, it's important that we do the research. We're also kind of kicking it open door a little bit because it cannot be too surprising that uh, if the, the plant is more nutritious, right? That the animal is healthier then. And that animal health is connected with nutrient density because these metabolites that are in the animal or that are in the meat, some of those serve as nutrients for us, but the animal or the plant doesn't produce them for us, of course. It produces them for their own health, right? But as a result, that produces more nutrient-dense foods. And, and we, we typically uh, uh, yeah, see, see that, that initial connection. And to your point, Eric, that's so important is that, and studies suggest that consumers are more willing to pay for their health than it is for the environment because it, consumers think that affects them directly. 
Now, the environmental piece also affects them directly, but that they may not be as aware of that, of course, right? If uh, right. the water usage of my right. avocado or, or almond in, in Chile or, uh, or California is, you know, uh, or, or how the beef even was raised with, with emissions and things like that and runoff. The environmental piece we don't think affects us directly, even though it does affect us directly, but it's not as tangible as maybe something health or, or flavor for that matter, which is also very important. And probably if something doesn't taste good, how, no matter how healthy it is, the consumer is not going to buy it. But there is this connection between phytochemicals, which are health-promoting compounds, but they also are flavor compounds. So that health and flavor are certainly connected too. So that's the good news at least. It's amazing how we know that, right? We should eat right. what tastes good, and that's that's the way of that connection. Um, it's it's amazing. Uh, there's there's some other person from Utah State that talked about that. You know, animals knowing what they need to eat, right? So yeah, <laughs> Fred, well, it's, we're, it's, it's, we're kind of back to where we started. <laughs> well, it's also you know, animals, all species of animals can kind of figure out what they need to eat, right? Uh, whether it be learning from their mother or intuitively. So it seems very uh, unlikely that we are the only species that cannot figure out what uh, they need to eat and that we need to spend billions of dollars being told what to eat. We must also have that miss them because uh, we are, you know, so it's our joke. It's like saying we're, we think we're the intelligent ones, but you don't need to tell a cow or another, you know, uh, uh, you know, a lion is not going to take up uh, roots, obviously. It kind of knows that uh, it needs to hunt uh, the gazelle, right? So... And humans have that that intuitive uh, wisdom too, I think. So what you're saying is, is, is we're so brilliant that we created this massive industrial chemical system to create food cheaply. And we realized that it's bad. So now we need to reinvent how we did it. And we're going to do it kind of basically the way we did it before. That's right. But we're in our smart species, right? Yeah, well, we make a lot of mistakes. And uh, if you, if you, you know, I, I like reading, reading history. And the thing you always see is, is that humans make the same mistake over and over and over again. And then the next generation, we, we make the same mistake again, just perhaps in a different area. So, uh, hey, we're consistent and we're really good at it. Yeah. That, that's true. That's true. Let me put a quick plug in. Let me put a quick plug in for, uh, you know, David Montgomery and Ann Bickley have a new book coming out being released, I believe, on the 22nd of June. What's your food aid? And this is, a, you know, I think it's a seminal piece of work because I don't think anybody's published in depth about this topic. They will be referencing very much the work of the Bionutrient Food Association in the early part of that book. And they recently completed a very relatively small study that, that has, I think, Stefan, been very consistent with the work that you've yeah. been doing in, ter in terms of. So, so we've got we're starting to get the word out. Right. And this is the beginning phase of getting of getting the word out. Um, prime time is still some some ways off. Right. But I can I can see it coming. I can feel it coming. This is going to be, I think, a, a, a wonderful opportunity for the food system to not abruptly change, but to modify at a at a pace that is going to quicken because there will be a scientific background behind it. So one of the other audiences we have that tunes into this podcast on a regular basis, in addition to farmers, is ag technologists. So, you know, ag tech startups that are looking to we really want to help point them in the direction of regenerative ag. Okay. Because there's so many technology companies out there like, Oh, a couple more bushels, you know, a couple, you know, a few less pounds of this. It's just, 
making a broken system a little bit less broken or something like that. So there's huge opportunities here, Eric. Where, where do you see some of these opportunities for startup companies to get uh, involved in this uh, different look at uh, food supply, a different look at how we're producing food and, and where, where are some of the opportunities in that realm in your mind? Well, I mean, one of the things that we are working on at the BFA is a bio, what we call the bionutrient meter, right? I think there's a lot of opportunity to create um, portable, you know, low-cost tools that can be used at the farming level, throughout the supply chain, and in consumers' hands. And again, you're not looking for the micro measures. You're looking for general indicators, uh, red, red, green, yellow, right? I think it's sufficient as long as everybody understands what that means. But I think portability for uh, tools that can then home run that data to a, to a database that continues to refine the models, right? So that we are constantly building on this laboratory level work that we're doing in, in real time out in the field. So I think that any of those types of technologies have a, have a clear future. The other thing that also comes to mind is I'm going to call it the miniaturization of the processing system. I, you know, there years ago I was doing work overseas and, and we always were endeavoring to create appropriate technologies for places in Africa or places in Asia that didn't have all the infrastructure that we had. If you think about localization and, and regionalization of, of food production, right? How do we make that, How do we do that economically at a smaller scale? And I believe we've come a long ways in both mechanical and electrical and other engineering disciplines to be able to put that together. I think that's another area that has a huge, huge opportunity, um, you know, with a, with a focus on the ergonomics, with a focus on safety, and with a focus on efficiency. So those are two areas that I'm excited about. Um, you know, the other areas that are already in existence, I think, and, and are being explored are things around power generation on a remote basis. You know, which kind of ties into these into these uh, production facilities, but a lot of the things you're right. I mean, there there's a lot of incremental technology out there. There's a whole lot of money going into the food tech space, you know, which I think is an entirely different uh, pathway. Um, I'm not a fan of replacing food with something else. So I, you know, I, I wish I wish all those folks the best, but I don't. I'm I'm not a fan of that uh, of that investment at this point in time. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's about portability and I think it's about localization. Yeah, I just was on a, a conference call last night talking about essentially a processor in a box where you can buy okay. you know, a, a group of shipping containers and put it on your farm and it can process uh, poultry, 200 birds an hour. You know, so everything you right. need that's USDA inspected. So that small scale, like you said, if you're going to get to these local food sheds, you have to get to the local food processing in the case of animals, or even in the case of produce and such, there's washing, handling, packing that needs to happen. And um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a key, key point. Um, no, I, I think, um, you know, when, when we look at this, the future food is, is definitely going to be different. And I, I really appreciate the, the work that, uh, that you guys are coming. So paint a, paint a picture of why this is important. What's the potential for healthcare savings, uh, life expectancy, quality of life, uh, ecosystem services. Let's, let's just be a little wild because you can always be right when you're predicting the future, you know, uh, as long as nobody plays this back 10 years from now, right? Um, 
Stefan, uh, de- describe that ideal world that you're that you're working for uh, when when you're when you retire, Professor Emeritus, and, and uh, have have all the accolades hanging on the wall. What is what is your contribution and your team's contribution going to to look like? Uh, you think to the world? Well, at the end of my career, I hope to have answered the question: Do more sustainable production practices also improve human health and the nutrient density of foods? Uh, very much believe that uh, at least initial work suggested there's a connection between the two. And if you look at, for instance, and that's something we often don't talk about, the environmental footprint of our healthcare system. Now, I've worked in, in, in hospitals and did my postdoctoral training there. The amount of, of, of uh, consumables we blow through and the amount of, of cost that it, it, it takes to keep people sort of yeah, healthy, but we're not really addressing the root cause, right? That's one of those things. If we even bring that back, uh, that could already be a, a major saver of, of, of things like greenhouse gas emissions and, and improving the health uh, uh, of people. And also the monetary savings we make from that. If we even invest like a fraction of that into, into improving our food supply, uh, I think we're, we're better off. Uh, part of the issue is, of course, is that there is a certain degree of profitability to, uh, to that, right? If you, but if uh, doing the right thing becomes the most profitable thing, then uh, I'll be very, very happy. And, and doing a sustainable thing uh, uh, and, and making that profitable, then uh, yeah, I think we're looking very good. But as always, these are these are baby steps. So I must also be realistic uh, that uh, I can I can have dreams, and I hope we can uh, we can move the needle a little bit in the right direction. But uh, yeah, there's some big changes that need to happen in the next thirty to forty years. How about you, Eric? Where do you hope to to see this all lead to, and kind of kind of paint that picture of of human health, food, you know, healthcare, and environmental care? You know, how do you see this all coming together in the big picture? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I totally agree with Stefan. I mean, my big big vision is that the healthcare system is really sick care at this point, and a lot of it is tied to the foods and other habits that we have, the foods that we consume, and other habits that we have. You know, the Rockefeller Foundation put out an interesting piece last year about the true cost of the food system. And, you know, it, we, we spend $2 for every one on, on repairing damage done uh, relative to what we pay at the, at the checkout aisle. So our food is cheap at the checkout aisle because we haven't internalized all the real cost of that system across, across the spectrum, right? And if you think about the amount of money in the healthcare system that is around treating symptoms that have many times been caused by metabolic anxiety, I'll call it, Stefan, for lack of a better term, right? Um, My dream is that this all comes together and we can live in a a healthier fashion. The money that is spent is spent to create health as opposed to fix things that we've broken up front. And people say, well, you know, this, you're talking about a very elite food system. It's going to be way more expensive now. You know, it, it, I think that that is a very reductionist view of, of the way that things can work here. I think that it's simply a reallocation of what we spend money on. And if, if the cost of food goes up because we've also solved for other issues through that food production system and we're not spending that money elsewhere, our net cost of living should go down. Right. It's a complicated formula. But if you go through the logic of that, I think it holds water. 
And so that, that's, that's, that's my vision is that, you know, our cost of living goes down because we've reallocated where we spend the money and we get it right this time. Yeah, and mind you, Eric, if, you know, and that's, that is so important about the true cost of food. The true cost of food may not be reflected in our cheap grocery bill, but mind you, you and I as the consumer will pay for it elsewhere with cleaning up water supplies, cleaning up soils, right, and, and things like that. So yeah. when people say, oh, this is an, an elitist thing, I also, like you, disagree with that because we still pay for it elsewhere because someone has to pay for it. And we as consumers are the ones that are paying for it. So it's just a sort of reallocation of the cost and, and a sort of a rewiring of the way that we think about these things. The other thing right. I'd like to add to that is not only does the um, quality of food increase and your overall cost of living decrease when you look at it in macro, I would also contend that quality of life increases. Uh, I you know, I, I have both conventional farm and a regenerative farm. Okay. So when we're on our conventional farm growing corn and soybean, if we spray a chemical to kill the weeds, you know, that's standard practice that what we do. If I spill some of that on me, I, you know, I get a little nervous, right? But if I'm, yeah. if I'm moving cattle from pasture to pasture and, and, and let's say she, she decides that as I'm moving her through the chute that, uh, I needed to take a little bath and, you know, some fresh, uh, from some fresh uh, fermented uh, go juice, right? Uh, <laughs> it stinks, but I'm not worried about that killing me. See, so right. I, I think there's a quality of life aspect that, and and I think the elitist thing um, that's at first, right? Because there's such yeah. small supply of it, and because yeah. there's a small supply, we don't have the processing efficiencies and all those kind of things. But I think as the momentum builds, yeah. you agree. The, that 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 cost will come down just because we're wasting so much to create it now, and, and it won't be as elitist. But you just kind of have to get over that hump, right? And that's essentially well, what again, the two of you are doing together. Yeah, I mean, it's the cost of the system. I agree that always comes down. I mean, I think solar is probably a good example of you know what happens to what was considered to be an elitist means of producing electricity, and it too has its issues, right? So it's not like solar has solved everything, but. I think in the food case, it is a, you know, Stefan, you, you characterize it correctly. It's a rewiring of the way that we think about where our money is spent, right? And because everybody's healthcare is expensive and because everybody's uh, taxation is high and you think about where that money goes, what it's, it's going to fix things that could be avoided in the first place, right? You can lay this out and that's work that, some people are doing, there's a, you know, true cost accounting is a theme at this point that many applied economists are working on. To say, in total, we spend way more than we have to, but we just don't tag it correctly. We don't identify that expenditure correctly. So I think that that economic proposition, if that's all that motivates people is economics, I don't care. It's, I'm all for it, right? We know what we can do because the science backs it up and let economics be the driver. That's great. Because underlying those economics are a good set of outcomes that today are a little bit elusive for us because we've built the system that we've built. It's not a bad system. It actually works extremely well for what it was designed for, right? So this isn't about pointing fingers at the system, but we do need policy changes to help support these, help support these initiatives. The policy elephant in the room is, still has to be dealt with, but I think we can deal with it more effectively when we have science in our, in our, in our corner. Excellent. Excellent. 
but no, I, I really want to uh, uh, thank you both for your time. I know you ha have a lot of things going on. Uh, Eric, you've got some very interesting articles and uh, following him on LinkedIn. Um, read a lot of the things that you're doing there. Have to look at the litany of background that this gentleman has. It's it's amazing. Uh, you've, you've done a lot of work in, in the industry to, to really move the industry forward. And what the Bionutrient Food Association is doing is is, uh, is amazing. I mean, really the cutting edge things that, that we really need. And Dr. Van Vliet, definitely follow him. He's at Utah State University now uh, doing some amazing things there. Um, really, really uh, thoughtful and, and, and thinking about how we can really get the soil to human health connection working, working together. And I, I'm very excited about this area. And, and thank you both for your contributions and what you're doing. Thank, thank you so for the much. All right. Take care and, and get that figured out. We, we expect uh, uh, results in about six months. That'll be great, Dr. Van Vliet. So no problem. And Eric, I expect a full supply chain rework and these uh, food systems <laughs> probably in the next uh, 12 months. They should have that done. So, oh, sure. Um, no problem. No problem. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll get back together in about 13 months and we'll, we'll hear how okay. great everything's working. Okay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I appreciate you your dedication much. to this long-term vision. Thank you so much, guys. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope today's episode has encouraged you to learn more about the opportunities you may have to participate in the value created around production practices and quality. And the great news is that impact goes far beyond your bottom line. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.